Good morning. I'm so happy to be here. I'm, I'm delighted even. I didn't realize it when I was putting this together, but this is just another version. If I could tell the world one thing, it's we're all okay. I like that meditation. Thanks, Jill. I want to open with a poem from Mary Oliver. The title of the poem is Mindful. Every day I see or hear something that more or less kills me with delight, that leaves me like a needle in the haystack of light. It was what I was born for, to look, to listen, to lose myself inside this soft world, to instruct myself over and over in joy and acclamation. Nor am I talking about the exceptional, the fearful, the dreadful, the very extravagant, but of the ordinary, the common, the very drab, the daily presentations. Oh, good scholar, I say to myself, how can you help but grow wise with such teachings as these, the untrimmable light of the world, the ocean's shine, the prayers that are made out of grass? So I started thinking about desire and delight, I don't know when, a while back. It's probably that Mary Oliver poem that got me started on that. Um, but I've since come across um, a, lot of, a lot of conversations in the last several years about desire and a couple of books. And I'll be honest, desire still feels like a hard topic to me. Um, it feels, hmm, I don't know, I think we have a hard time with that. I know when, when people tell me, when I'm given the instruction to focus on what you desire, it feels kind of um, intriguing, but also a little bit scary. And I suspect it's kind of important. And I think I linked it up with delight, because I think maybe delight is kind of a backdoor into desire, it's, um, it feels a little more lighthearted and easy to me than desire. But I don't want to lose uh, sight of this, this sort of this deeper feeling of desire um, and, and the, the issue of desire. And um, I want to make clear, when I'm talking about desire, I'm not talking about the long list of I want. I want, I want, I want, I want. I got in the car this morning a few weeks ago my battery died overnight one night. We got jumped. It's fine. I, I don't know why it died. I think maybe a door was left open overnight. Um, but it did something so that my audio system doesn't work anymore. It still has power because it shows me a sign that says, enter code. But I don't know what code to enter, and I can't find instructions. I have to Google it. I haven't had time yet. But anyway, I got in the car this morning, and I wanted music because I'm used to getting in the car. And when I get in the car and I'm going to drive, that's how I fill the time, and I love it. I put on music I like, and I sing, and I dance, and there's nobody else in my car, and I'm not bothering anyone, and they're not seeing me be goofy. And I wanted my music, and it wasn't there. And when I'm talking about this desire, I'm not talking, you know, desire that could potentially change the world. I'm not talking about, I want this because I'm used to it. I want this because I like it. I want... I'm talking about something deeper, and frankly, I don't know yet how to articulate that. That's still an open question for me. But 
theologian Wendy Farley. She's a Christian theologian. Um, So I'm not going to read a whole lot from her, but um, I will say she uses the Christian tradition with great sensitivity and in a very multi-religious context, which I really appreciate. But I'm going to read a passage from her that I think articulates why I think maybe desire is, is important. And she starts with the idea of the divine, that humanity is created in the divine image, although she's talking even more broadly than um, human beings. The first sentence, if you'll notice, says beings, not human beings. So here's Wendy Farley. The divine image that is shared among beings establishes in us the deepest possible intimacy with one another. This essential intimacy draws erotic desire. Desire yearns to reestablish the connections that undergird our existence. It moves toward others, delighted by their beauty and moved by their suffering. Desire and delight carry us toward intimacy with others rather than promote clinging, addiction, or self-possession. They are quintessentially relational, moving always toward particular others and the infinite variety of beings. Our image of ourselves as isolated beings that may chance to be in relationship with others and may choose to make those relationships more positive is misleading. What I take her to be saying is that we are connected. We are basically relational beings. Whatever it is that makes us what we are has made us to live in connection, to be in connection, to desire connection, to be seeking always for connection. I particularly, I I think, well, let me just say this idea, what she labels divine image, I think in our tradition, we call the inherent worth and dignity. And it's interesting now that we're talking about, is it the inherent worth and dignity of persons, or is it of beings? We're talking right now within our Unitarian Universalist movement about how, who, who, what is it that has inherent worth and dignity, which is interesting. She says just beings, all beings. I thought it was also interesting that this sense of connection, this yearning to be connected, is established with particular others. It's not a general, you know, it's easy to love humanity. I think J.D. Salinger maybe said it somewhere. Um, it's easy to love you know, humanity. It's harder to love particular people sometimes. To be connected with particular people is actually our challenge. It's fine to say, yeah, I think human beings are great. (laughs) Um, And then also she points out the infinite variety of beings. And um, we are different. We are all different. This is not a we are all connected in some way that obliterates the particularities of our lives and our individual beings. So this desire and this delight, I sort of, I've spent a little bit of time thinking about, so why, why does this feel hard? Why does this desire thing feel hard? And I think it goes back to our culturally ingrained stories about human nature. And in particular, this struggle we have in our culture with, what is it to be human? Is it to be an individual or is it to be part of a collective? And you're probably familiar with various, you know, different cultures come out in different places on that question. Um, and we have, I learned stories in graduate school about, you know, so this culture, like American, 
American culture in particular, Eurocentric American culture is really what we were talking about, um, is very individualistic. So it's about the human being as themselves. And then they, you know, because it suits them individually, they collectivize in certain ways. And you have volunteer organizations and that sort of thing. And other cultures, like say, when I was growing up, we used to just sort of lump all Asian cultures together and say Asian cultures are much more about community and collective. So we have, I do anyway, have these stories about there are these two different ways of being human. I was in an ethics class as a graduate student years ago when my professor said, so are you working with the human being as an individual or the human being as part of a group? And I was like, well, yes. She's like, no, you have to choose one. <laughs> you, have to for, you have to start in one place or the other. And I said, really, you have to start in one? You can't be both? Um, and and she, she really thought in order to do academic work of the type, well, I don't even remember what project I was working on, I had to choose a starting point. And it had to be either we are individuals or we are part of a group. Um, and it... It, that never felt right to me, to be forced. Um, but I think this is part of why we have trouble with desire, because desire is something you, you feel it in your gut. You don't, it's, yeah, you think about it maybe, but it's really, but it, it's something that hits us at our deepest levels. And they're very different. We, we, um, we connect with each other through desire, but the way our desires are formed are very individual. They are very particular. And I think we have had, we've been trained to have a fear that if we just allow everybody to follow their desires, we will all run amok. We will drink a lot. We will follow other addictions. We will get into all kinds of trouble. We will break the laws. We will, we will not care about each other. We will, you know, you, can, you, know, you know those stories. What's interesting to me is Wendy Farley, actually, this book, it's really thick. I, I, w I thought maybe I would preach more drawing on this book, and it was like, I, I don't have a handle on this. But she goes through chapters, pages and pages, of all the ways in which our desires are warped by whatever, our environment, by our training, by the stories we tell ourselves. And she's still looking for a way that desire is this thing that, helps us know who we are and who we are together, that pulls us to delight in each other, to be with each other. Um, so I have found that, well, and she, she, Wendy, I think Wendy Farley says this. I've run into it in other places as well. It may be, in fact, that if we follow what we most want, if we can find that, if we can turn off the radio and stop thinking about the fact that we're really missing the radio, we may be able to hear something, to feel something, to know something in ourselves that actually moves us toward more connection and more justice. This is basically what I'm trying to say, is that following our desire, paying attention to our delights, can actually move us toward a better world. It can move us, it inspire us, support us um, in doing the work of creating justice. It can also connect us to each other in doing that work. What I was really excited to share with you today is this little book. 
It's called The Book of Delights. I think the New York Times sent me to this book. I'll, um, yeah, I'll, I'll post it somewhere. Um, but it was written by Ross Gay, who is a poet who I'd never heard of, and I'll have to admit I didn't look up any of his poems. I love the way he uses language in this, this little book of essays. He decided a couple years ago that um, he would start on his birthday and every day write a little a short essay. He would do it longhand, and he would do it quickly about something that delighted him. So he, he undertook a regular practice of noticing delights. And um, this is interesting. I want to read you a chapter because I think this is also kind of what it speaks to why we undertake spiritual practice. It creates something new in us. It sharpens our attention. But he says this in his preface, it didn't take me long to learn that the discipline or practice of writing these essays occasioned a kind of delight radar, or maybe it was more like the development of a delight muscle, something that implies that the more you study in delight, the more delight there is to study. A month or two into this project, delights were calling to me, write about me, write about me. Because it is rude not to acknowledge your delights, I'd tell them that though they might not become essayettes, they were still important and I was grateful to them. Which is to say, I felt my life to be more full of delight. Not without sorrow or fear or pain or loss, but more full of delight. I also learned this year that my delight grows, much like love and joy, when I share it. So this is a wonderful book where he's sharing Lots and lots of delight. Uh, what's interesting to me is that in paying attention and in sharing, that um, Gay kind of moves toward um, a group of essays, and they're, they're really fun to read, just in and of themselves. Each of them is kind of interesting to read. But as a body, I think he's managed in this book to illuminate certain important things about the human condition, about who we are, even about what um, we've talked about as being humility, which I define as a true, uh, an understanding of who we truly are. And this is the picture of who we are that comes out for me as I read these delights. There is, um, there is a, a, an overall sense of familiarity among people. It's really very charming. He, he, because he's a poet and a very successful poet, he's, go, he's traveling all the time. He's teaching and he's traveling. So lots of inter in, interactions in airplanes, on trains, in the airport, in coffee, lots of coffee shops um, with strangers. And there are lots of moments of delight that involve interactions with strangers um, or noticing random things about those strangers or the way those strangers interact with the environment. Um, and he notes that the word familiarity, and he's talking here about um, servers in food establishments or uh, flight attendants in the airplane who call people honey or call him honey um, or baby. That we, you know, we use these words in relating to perfect strangers who we have never seen and will never see again sometimes, that are, there, there are terms of endearment and they are familiar labels. And he notes that familiarity, that word is very closely linked to family. 
It is going out and moving around the world and watching for things that delight him personally. He does recognize that this may not, what delights him will not be the same things that delight you or I. But in moving around and paying attention, he notices that there is an acknowledgement of connection, even where that connection is perhaps fleeting or passing, or maybe it's just very, very basic, and we only get one moment to notice it. In, in particular interactions. And I love, I love this thing that he says about, and this is where I think that that sense of familiarity moves into a sense of who we, a, a sort of a, his reading on who he thinks we are to each other. And he says this, Actually, he's been on a train, and he's noticing that people will get up and leave on a four-hour train ride. They'll get up and leave their bags on their seats and go you know, somewhere to make a phone call or use the facilities or whatever. And this seems, well, it seems a little strange to me. I don't spend time on trains, but it has something to do with the space being enclosed and the length of time and... Um, and he's saying this isn't, the point's not really about whether, we trust, whether people are bad or we think they're good or bad or that they will or won't steal, steal things. Um, but he says, in almost every instance of our lives, our social lives, we are, if we pay attention, in the midst of an almost constant, if subtle, caretaking. Holding open doors, offering elbows at crosswalks, letting someone else go first helping with the heavy bags, reaching what's too high or what's been dropped, pulling someone back to their feet, stopping at the car wreck, at the, stuck, at the struck dog, the alternating merge, also known as the zipper. Better and better known in Nashville, I'm thinking. This caretaking is our default mode, and it's always a lie that convinces us to act or believe otherwise. Always. So he's come around to... Again, we tell ourselves we're not connected. We tell ourselves we don't help each other. But actually, he's, he's thinking that the caretaking, and he's not using this caretaking in, in the negative sense, but in a very positive sense. It is, our, it is our default mode to look out for each other, to be connected, to lend a helping hand in passing, even with strangers. And I find that delightful. Actually, he also, um, in a way that I think does illuminate who we are and how we are as human beings, he talks about something he calls temporal allegiance, but what he really means is the everydayness. And he, he sort of arrived at this somewhere in the middle of his year of trying to write daily essays about delight. Um, he realized that he was piling up a stockpile of delights he hadn't talked about yet that he might. And he decided, no, I'm going to throw all those piles away because part of this exercise was about attending to this every day. And it's kind of not doing what I meant to be doing if I go back and write about something I put on a list two weeks ago, right? So this is attention to what happens every, every single day. And he says, this requires from me vigilance. I have to remember to pay attention. This is what makes it a practice, right? But it also requires faith. It requires faith that there will be something delightful 
if I'm there paying attention, that there isn't some scarcity of delightful things in the world. I don't need to hoard this. And I like this too. So he threw away everything he had squirreled away, and he still had plenty of things to write about for the rest of the year. And I, I, I just noted that he, he echoes Mary Oliver here in that very dailiness, the ordinary, the mundane. These are the things that are delightful to us. The other thing that Gay's practice of noticing delight for a year yielded for me as I read this essay, or this book, this collection of what he calls essayettes, um, was that noticing the delight and describing it, writing it down so that other people like me could read it, did not take us, the author and the reader, away from the concerns of justice. It did not devolve into some sort of solipsistic, um, a great description of one single person and the things they happen to like. You know, I did hear about a, you know, what brand of pen he likes to write with and which color ink. But mostly this book is a picture of how noticing things made him feel more alive and more compassion for the people around himself as well as for himself. And in passing, in this book, if you read this book, the Ross Gay happens to be a poet, yes, and a teacher. He's also biracial. His parents, one was white and one was African-American, He's also a man, and he's also very large, and he's aware of what his size means when he's in public sometimes. And as you read this book, there's all sorts of opportunities to use his meditations on delight, open up windows into analysis of all kinds of problems around racism especially, but also capitalism and sexism and... um, Police brutality. They, these and these are essays about delight, and it's delight in the midst of all the ways in which our world tries to shut us down. Um, and it's very, um, it's encouraging to me that we can follow the trail of delight and desire, and still see where we need to move. What needs to change? And I think ultimately it it leads us to, and this is, you know, sometimes we, um, ministers we often, and you you probably have heard this too, we all have like one sermon. (laughs) And we just preach the same sermon over and over again. And you all should probably know mine by now. Um, But for me it's, it's, well, we could label it the seventh principle, but it's about we are all connected. This is, this is what I think we need to, to live, what we need to live into, what we need to live in, what we need to recognize is just the way things are. We are connected, and we need to be better at being connected. So there's a one I want to share uh, Gay's essay at from November 26th, and I think this was in, it was either 2017 or 2018 when he was writing this. And it's entitled Sharing a Bag. I adore it 
when I see two people. Today it was, from the looks of it, a mother and child here on Canal Street in Chinatown, sharing the burden of a shopping bag or sack of laundry by each gripping one of the handles. It at first seems to encourage a kind of staggering as the uninitiated or the impatient will try to walk at his own pace, the bag twisting this way and that, whacking shins or skidding along the ground. But as we mostly do, feeling the sack, which has become a kind of tether between us, we modulate our pace, even our sway and saunter, the good and soul rhythms we might swear we live by, to the one on the other side of the sack. I suppose why... I suppose part of why I so adore the sack sharing is because most often this is a burden one or the other could manage just fine solo, which makes it different from dragging Granny's armoire up two flights of steps, say, or wrestling free a truck from a truck stuck hip deep in a snowbank. Yes, it's the lack of necessity of this act that's perhaps precisely why it delights me so. Everything that needs doing getting the groceries or laundry home, would get done just fine without this meager collaboration. But the only thing that needs doing without it would not. So I could carry the laundry alone, or I could collaborate with you, and we might get something more important done than the laundry. Right? So if Mary Oliver says we are made to look, to listen, to find and acclaim delight, Ross Gay suggests that the practice of watching for and recording that delight leads to a complementary realization that the only thing that needs doing is to be together, to adjust our pace and our movements to each other so that we can share the load. So my humble suggestion is to add a little bit of attention to delight to your life, maybe to desire if that works for you, and see how that moves you in the direction of justice and a world in which you and the people who come after you might be content to live. Amen. May it be so.